All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a monthly podcast on early American history. This month, I've got on my gaudiest Christmas sweater, and we're here to talk about holidays in early America. I'm Ken Owen, Associate Professor at the University of Illinois Springfield, and author of the book Political Community in Revolutionary Pennsylvania, 1774-1800. to As usual, I'm joined today by the Lord of Misrule of the Junto cast, Michael Hattam, who is the Associate Director of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute and the author of Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution, which is out now from Yale University Press. Thank you for being here, Michael. Thank you, Ken. And I'm also joined by the Grinch of the Junto cast, Roy Rogers. And Roy is a history teacher at the District of Columbia International School. Thanks, I guess, for being here. <laughs> howdy, Ken. That was not a very festive howdy. <laughs> Given that at least two thirds of us are getting into the festive spirit here at the Junto cast, we thought that we'd devote this month's episode to looking at the observance of holidays in early America. In the rest of the episode, we're going to particularly look at Christmas, Thanksgiving, Independence Day. But we will also be mentioning a number of other different holidays that formed an important part of the holiday calendar of early American life. But given that we're recording this in mid-December, it seems appropriate that we should start with early American observances of Christmas. Michael, what do you have to say on the topic? Well, so I think one of the, the one of the first things that you need to know about Christmas in early America is that it is not Christmas in contemporary America. Christmas, like so many of of our contemporary iterations of our holidays, was a sort of post-Civil War um, development. But Christmas in in the colonial period, especially, I mean, if we talk specifically about 17th century New England, Christmas was not a holiday. Uh, that was celebrated by the Puritans in New England. Part of this is a holdover from uh, Puritanism in England. Uh, in the 17th century, there are laws on the books in Massachusetts forbidding the celebration of Christmas. And the, the reason for that, there's multiple reasons for that, but, but one of the main reasons for that is that it's very much seen as a Catholic holiday. And so for this reason, it is it has no appeal whatsoever uh, to New England Puritans. So I wrote a blog post about this a few years ago, which is still up on the on the blog at earlyamericanist.com, where I call it the early American war on Christmas, because it's very much that Puritans had to uh, try to effectively legislate against the uh, celebration of this holiday. What we would think of as Christmas Day, um, all businesses were open, offices were open, people went to work, right? It was just basically treated as as any other day. That began to change over the course of the 18th century, but even then, uh, Christmas did not resemble anything like our 
modern version at any time in the 17th or 18th century. And I think it's particularly important that we highlight that sense that Christmas was an alien tradition Mm -hmm. to many of the early colonists in America. Um, We still see that today. I mean, it's quite common for people who are trying to downplay the significance of Christmas to point out, for example, that um, Christmas is celebrated at the same time as the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. And if we're going to look at the origins of where that argument first starts getting used um, in America, we're going back to Puritan leaders like the Mathers, who are very much trying to downplay any sense that Christmas is a holiday that should be celebrated. And again, that reminds us that when we're we're talking about um, the establishment of, of colonies in New England, we are talking about the long fallout from the Reformation in Europe, that these attitudes towards Christmas are reflected in a whole host of different um, Protestant and especially Calvinist countries and localities around Europe, and that in many ways the New England aversion, or certainly the New England authorities' aversion to Christmas very much springs out of those religious politics that have been playing out in Europe in the 15 and 1600s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Increase Mather was one who, who, who wrote an entire pamphlet about why New Englanders should not be celebrating Christmas. Christmas is not a holiday that's uh, mentioned in the Bible itself, right? And Puritans were sort of hardcore scripturalists. Mather also, he wrote, uh, why should Protestants own anything that has the name Mass in it, right? And that's the anti-Catholicism that's inherent, uh, that's a result of the the Reformation. And he, he also, in that pamphlet, makes this argument about the the holiday originating from Saturnalia. There is one other aspect of it that uh, that we haven't mentioned, and that is the way that Christmas was celebrated in England in the uh, early 17th century, late 16th century, had a number of sort of strange um, social class-based practices. One of these customs was where they would take the the poorest man in town uh, and name him the Lord of Misrule, and then that, that person would be treated like a gentleman for that day. There's, it's a, it, there's a sort of a class inversion that would happen. And that, that also is not something that would have appealed uh, to the Puritan authorities in 17th century New England. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And a lot of those sort of more out there festive traditions very much come from the sense that this is the end of a agricultural cycle and it's mm-hmm. okay to have that time to to have some sort of sense of, of social inversion. Um, I'll bring Roy in in a second. I just wanted to comment that at first I thought that it was quite strange when we were talking about the Mather's pamphlet that they were both arguing that Christmas was too pagan and too Catholic, mm-hmm. but I guess if you come yeah. from the Mather family, then that's probably not a contradiction in terms. Yeah. So <laughs> you can square that circle pretty easily. It's, it's definitely not. And I think it really is important to really emphasize in New England um, that sort of like cultural war that's been going on, you know, from the Calvinist 
uh, wing of you know the Church of England for I think what at that point well over a century. Um, and I think that Christmas though does get a stronger foothold in non-New England states. It is celebrated um, below the Mason, well, what will become the Mason-Dixon line in, in places like Virginia and Maryland. Um, the problem, of course, is that the the population density is so much you know more spread out than New England, so it's really difficult for the sort of folk traditions of New England or of English Christmas to be transported to Virginia wholesale. I mean, particularly early on, you know, with the amount of population churn that's going on with the death, um, the, the, the massive death toll of that era. So while Christmas is more present, it doesn't, you don't see a sort of one-to-one relationship um, in the non-Puritan colonies with sort of England. There's not this, uh, you know, complete trans trans uh, translation of the sort of English folkways, if you really want to be fancy about it, um, towards Christmas in places where you lack that Puritan, you know, stringentness about the the holiday. I think one of the one of the other things that even even talking about outside of of New England, obviously New Year's is part of this uh, sort of Christmas holiday season, and. In in lots of places in in colonial America, in, in British colonial America, it, it was the celebration of New Year's that maybe looked more akin to our contemporary Christmas than actually than Christmas did. The New Year was a time for social gatherings of uh, gift giving to children. So that type of thing tended to happen more during the celebration of New Year's than for Christmas. And that kind of goes back to Ken's point about this holiday season as marking part of the sort of annual life cycle as opposed to a a sort of religious festival. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, we see that um, coming out of a reaction against too much pushback against Christmas from Calvinism. And famously, New Year's or Hogmanay is celebrated in Scotland to the extent that um, while the rest of the UK just has New Year's Day as a holiday, um, Scotland has January 1st and January 2nd as um, as holidays to um, the, the joke is to recover from the the New Year's Eve partying but again that comes very much out of the Calvinist authorities banning Christmas and yet there still being that desire for some social recognition of having passed the winter solstice and of having um, some recognition of the passage of another year and again it it, it highlights the both some of the disjunctures um when we look at christmas in early america but also a lot of the continuities with european practices that we see in the in the folk traditions of, of early america i think it's also important new england of course that there is this decline over time of this uh hard banning or, or a hard discouragement of Christmas, you know, as New England becomes more diverse, as Anglicanism begins, you know, once we get into the 18th century, to get a solid foothold in New England, you know, you start seeing a loosening of um, of of this sort of war on Christmas or, you know, the, uh, a surrendering of the battle over time, that the full-on surrender, of course, will happen that's a that's a mid to late nineteenth century story, but it begins in the eighteenth century once New England starts to become a little bit more diverse, um, and you know there's a much more of a structural pushback to the war on Christmas. 
Yeah, I think earlier in the in in the very beginning of the 17th century, in the 1630s, the beginning of the New England settlements, there's not much being legislated about Christmas because there didn't need to be because Puritans who had come over from England didn't celebrate it. But as you get towards the end of the the mid and the second half of the 17th century, as Puritan piety is sort of of the original generation is declining, uh, this is when you start to see legislation against Christmas and the, and this sort of public campaign by the Mathers to discourage celebration of it. And then, of course, you know, as Puritanism effectively sort of transforms into uh, 18th century New England congregationalism, the chains sort of start to break down. I think one other thing that we that we could talk about here, another holiday um, in the colonial period that sort of has also has these sort of... Um, anti-Catholic and, and sort of social aspects is Pope's Day, right? This is November 5th, sometimes referred to as Guy Fawkes Day or the Gunpowder Plot Day. And of course, that refers to the uncovering of the plot to blow up the House of Parliament by Guy Fawkes, who was an English Catholic. And, and this became a famous sort of Protestant holiday throughout the 17th century in England. And it carried over in New England well into the, well into the 18th century, um, and was sort of celebrated with a parade and effigies of the Pope, and and uh, eventually it sort of transformed into uh, something of a violent holiday, featuring competitions that routinely turned violent between working men from various parts of the of the city. Um, but this is another sort of you know holiday that has a uh, a deep sort of uh, religious aspect to it and an and a, and a interesting social component. It has a particularly interesting social component because of the claims that that's making about English nationalism or, or, mm -hmm. or British nationalism in this in this period as well. I mean, it's, yeah. it's well remarked on in the list, literature on festive culture that um, the festive calendar of 18th century America takes its lead from English traditions. And yeah. as you say, Pope's Day um, is not Pope's Day in England, but it's it's celebrated to this day as, as Bonfire Night. And mm -hmm. I spent a year teaching at the University of Sussex, which is in Brighton on the south coast, not too far from a town called Lewis, that to this day has... Um, I think it's six separate fire societies who parade <laughs> through the streets of the town carrying mm -hmm. torch-lit um, effigies of contemporary public figures who are thought of as being particularly um, deserving, deserving of scorn. As you point out, <laughs> one of the ways that this is celebrated in Boston is by social inversion. It might not quite get to the appointment of a Lord of Misrule, but certainly the rich in Boston are expected to contribute to the um, the displays and to the festivities, and they will suffer consequences to their windows if they do not freely contribute to the celebration <laughs> um, of Pope's Day. But that we then see that transformation when it comes to the 
early events of the imperial crisis that this holiday, this tradition, which is founded on a defence of the rights of parliament and on the supremacy of parliament against all that wish to threaten the legitimacy of the rule of the people, that it's Pope's Day that becomes the focal point for those um, popular expressions of um, public unity against the actions of the British crown. Yeah, that's a great point. I think also, I mean, while Pope's Day is celebrated in this way, really specifically in Boston, this is not a colonial-wide practice, though the holiday is noted and maybe in some sense you could say celebrated in in other colonies, but certainly not with all the the pomp and circumstance in, in Boston. But the aspect of... Uh, the city's wealthy elite contributing financially to the festivities, which are aimed primarily at the uh, working and middling class, ha- has examples of we we have examples of that in other colonies, though not necessarily attached to this holiday, right? If we've talked about what colonial election days look like, right? And this is often um, this was election days, court days in colonial America. While we might not think of them as holidays certainly had sort of holiday slash festive aspects to them. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that these holidays that today have really lost any sort of sense of um, public festivities, um, we could add court days into into the mix there as well. Um, Those really were the focal point of social connections and and popular celebrations, um, which stands in stark contrast to the great civic holiday of American tradition, Thanksgiving. Um, And and I bring this up because one of the things that you will hear every November is that there were days of Thanksgiving that were ordered by the Continental Congress in the 1770s, um, that Washington issues proclamations of Thanksgiving, um, followed by John Adams, followed by James Madison, though notably not Thomas Jefferson. And that's sort of presented in public discourse as part of the, the history of the celebration that we have today. And in fact, um, and I hope you guys will want to to, to jump in more on this. Um, in fact, the celebration or the days of Thanksgiving that were held from the 1770s through to the end of the War of 1812 were really quite markedly different from the sort of civic celebration that we have today. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk, not really to talk about these kind of Thanksgivings as festive in the way that we would think about it. They were designed as times of reflection and repentance and inward looking and in many ways a request for deliverance from God, for, for God to come and, and act in a positive manner towards the United States and not in a sort of Thanksgiving in the way we think about it today as more, you might say, early Thanksgivings are very negative. They are about resolving some crisis. They are about uh, some public crisis. Um, you know, you see that with 
the Thanksgiving's given by Puritan authorities. You also see that when the national and state governments get involved in doing it later, and they're very negative. They're about, we have this crisis. You need to pray. You need to think. We need God to help deliver us from our present crisis compared to our current Thanksgiving, which is very positive. You know, it's about giving thanks for the amazing family you have or the amazing friends or your own gratitude for what you've been given versus this, you know, very crisis-based um, nature of these Thanksgiving uh, calls. So calling them festive in the way, you know, that everyone hopes you have a festive Thanksgiving or a festive Christmas today, is it really doesn't do them justice. And it conflates two very different ways of thinking about um, how to resolve these sort of societal crises and the role in which religion plays in that. Yeah, so that's why you know that that's why Jefferson is explicitly absent uh, from that list of the the first four presidents to declare these sort of public days of, of humiliation, of fasting, and of prayer. Jefferson was on occasion prodded by certain constituents to declare these types of days, but effectively uh, refused to do that. I think it also speaks to the difficulty of assuming that there was a national culture in America in the early republic. Um, for example, it's notable to me when I look through the proclamations that were given on the days that are talked about as Thanksgiving days in modern histories of Thanksgiving. Um, Washington and Madison use the term Thanksgiving, but for Adams... It's a day of fasting and humiliation. And again, as Roy has pointed out, this is very different from the celebratory nature of Thanksgiving today. I, I want to insert a joke about Michigan football and humiliation around Thanksgiving at this point, but perhaps I should be more charitable and, and leave that out. Um, <laughs> but more seriously, uh, we've talked previously on this podcast, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, with the Continental Association, for example, and the attempt that the 13 colonies made to get on the same page in organising and coordinating a protest and a serious long-lasting protest across 13 um, colonies and across a continent. One of the things that the colonies found there was that it was difficult to agree on what cultural touchstones people were willing to give up. Um, that New Englanders thought that it would be easy for giving up um, cockfighting and other forms of um, animal-based entertainments. Um, Virginians, on the other hand, thought that uh, elaborate New England style of mourning dress perhaps wasn't the most appropriate thing to be putting on display at a time of, of national crisis. And when we look at what Congress ordered, and when we look at these days of thanksgiving or of fasting and humiliation at times of either national crisis or very recent emergence from national crisis, we see really very tentative steps being taken because pretty much the only thing that you could expect that all 13 colonies would get on the same page about is by having a very solemn reflection about the seriousness of the crisis from which America had just emerged. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. I mean, just just generally speaking, I mean, so much of the the scholarship on the early national period in the in the last uh, twenty five years or so has explored the efforts at trying to develop some kind of national culture or sort of shared national identity. So one of the things that's interesting about these public days of fasting declared by the government is that while there's no shared culture, there is a sort of shared religiosity, right, despite the denominational pluralism. And so one of the one of the notable aspects of these types of declarations by these early administrations is their the sort of ecumenical nature of them, right? They're calling for for a day of prayer and a day of fasting, but they're doing it in a way that is not denominationally specific. Right. It's trans-Protestant, right? There you go. I think Hmm. to to sort of cast what Ken said earlier in a slightly different light, one of the things that does unite these colonies is, you know, they all are controlled broadly by Protestants and in this period of time. And this language of Thanksgiving was something that was understood across very different cultural bounds. And this was sort of a touchstone that could be used to sort of hammer home, really, the urgency of these crises um, alongside calling for people to, you know, put their best effort forth to resolve them. Yeah, so the, the what we think of as Thanksgiving, what we know as Thanksgiving, much like Christmas, it has its origins in the second half of the of the 19th century. It has some kind of forerunner, and we're not going to get into the specifics of the, the the Thanksgiving myth going back to the 1620s, but there is an example from the 1760s that effectively tries to create that, the myth that, that we have sort of come to know in Plymouth in the 1760s, in the midst of the imperial crisis. Um, there's a, a club that's established by young men actually in the town called the Old Colony Club, and it was supposed to celebrate the the history of the of the original Plymouth Colony. Uh, and they created this uh, holiday for themselves for the town called Forefathers Day, and it involved a parade uh, where they actually paraded through the through the town holding aloft copies of the original colony's printed laws. Uh, there was a, a, a sort of festive civic dinner. There was uh, songs and that type. They, they dressed in the style of their, um, of their forefathers. Uh, and it was sort of celebrated for a few years. And then as the crisis developed, sort of half of this club became patriots and half became loyalists. And so uh, Forefathers Day sort of uh, went the way of the went the way of the crisis, but then it was kind of revived for a while in the in the early nineteenth century. And so, while it's not a direct uh, antecedent or direct forerunner of what we've come to celebrate as Thanksgiving, it's an it's an early example of the sort of impulse I think behind at least the the myth behind Thanksgiving. Well, one thing that I think we can definitely say about early America is that they did love a good parade. And given that we've basically spent all the foregoing minutes of the episode talking about how everything that today we think of as a celebration actually wasn't really that celebratory at all, um, perhaps it would be a good time for us to finish on something that really did um 
bring about a sense of joy and partying. And I'm talking here, of course, of the celebration of July the 4th. Hopefully, for listeners of the podcast, we don't need to go into too much detail about why July the 4th became so important. (laughs) Um, But do we have anything to say about how the 4th was celebrated and what why it came to have such a big importance um, so soon in the festive calendar of the early Republic. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the earliest celebrations of July 4th, I mean, is that they, they, they start to take place beginning in 1777 in many places. So these early July 4th celebrations usually involve some prominent male individual in, from the town who would give a 4th of July oration. In these earliest years, they, they were largely meant to keep up the morale for the resistance. As the war drags on into the end of the 1770s, it became a, a massive task for the Continental Congress and, and just for patriots generally to, to maintain some kind of uh, vigilance among the, the general population for the, the, prosecu- the continuing prosecution of the war. So, so its original purpose was really founded on this, this sort of wartime circumstances, but the holiday continued afterwards into the early national period, uh, still with orations, but the, the nature of the orations changed and really started to to focus on achieving the, this task that we sort of laid out before of fostering some kind of national sentiment. And often these orations came to be uh, what we might think of as um, prospect orations, in the, like prospect poems in the sense of telling the audience just how inevitable the future glory of the, of the United States was if they would just hold the course and keep the virtues that made the revolution. There's also a, an important class dimension to the celebration of the fourth, at least in, in New England, and, and Al Young covers this really well in The Shoemaker and the Tea Party, where in New England, lots of the revolutionary holidays that are celebrated were the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Boston Massacre was commemorated in this same way with orations. Um, these uh, sort of the, the Tea Party, these sort of um, popular actions, uh, which were commemorated by the general population of uh, New England, as the Bostonian and, and uh, Massachusetts elites wanted to clamp down on those celebrations. Bostonian elites basically start to, to prioritize the 4th of July as a way of, of taking over for, from these other celebrations and, and uh, basically creating a sanitized and, and controlled form of celebration of the revolutionary legacy. And that, that lasts well into and through the 19th century. Well, I think it's important there that you talk about the fact that the 4th is something that everyone can get behind. Um, Mm -hmm. When we talk about other celebrations in the 1790s, and there's some fantastic literature that's that's been written on this, we find that Federalists and Democratic Republicans start celebrating different holidays, um, 
Federalists are very likely to celebrate Washington's birthday, um, which of course is forerunner to having President's Day as a as, as a holiday in February today. Um, Democratic Republicans are more likely to celebrate Bastille Day and celebrate the French Revolution and the the worldwide Republican tradition. Now, obviously, for partisan and ideological reasons, both of those days become only associated with one party. In fact, the very idea of holding a celebration on those days is almost a repudiation of the opposing party's ideology. And July the 4th stands across that. Of course, um, I'm not trying to say that July the 4th celebrations in the 1790s were not partisan. Very often you find that partisans on both sides just happen to have separate celebrations on the same day. But nevertheless, it helped keep that idea of some sense of national unity going, even as both political parties were increasingly defining the American experiment and the American Republic in very different ways. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, too. I think the 4th of July has a broad appeal in the way that some of these New England holidays that are celebrated by people in New England, like the Boston Massacre, like the Battle of Bunker Hill, those days were, those were not holidays anywhere outside of New England. And we see, and so they end up dying away with help from Bostonian elites. But we, we see this sort of dynamic also play out with Evacuation Day which is a day that was celebrated in New York for the day that the British left in 1783, was celebrated with parades and, and, and all of the, the types of festivities that we've sort of been talking about. Boston had an, had, a, had an evacuation day that was celebrated in New York, at least. This was at, towards the end of November. Um, but, you know, evacuation day is a sort of location-specific holiday, Right. And it ultimately comes to be replaced by the federally established Thanksgiving after the Civil War. But so there are these local there were these original local sort of holidays commemorating the, the revolution, but that just over time really died out and, and sort of came to be all um, uh, subsumed by by the Fourth of July. Isn't New York one of the states that has a state day of Thanksgiving before it becomes a federally recognised holiday? Um, I, I only mentioned that just to, to, to raise the, the point more generally, that actually even out of the, um, the celebrations that have become national, um, quite a lot of them emerged from the nation as a whole essentially co-opting more local traditions. Well, now that we've covered Christmas, Thanksgiving, Pope's Day and July the 4th, all I've got to do really is to go and prepare some Christmas cookies and some eggnog and to make sure that my daughter leaves a glass of milk and a carrot outside our door for Santa. That means that we should probably get on to our takeaways. So, Roy, what would your main takeaway be? I hope by historicizing some of the most important holidays to Americans here in the 21st century, uh, it hammers home something that I think is really important to understand about 
um, holidays in general, which is that they are always in flux. And people who are frequently telling you that there's these fixed traditions about uh, about holidays and how they should be celebrated are frequently trying to push their own political, personal, religious uh, ideologies on you. And I think people should feel free to preserve the things about the holidays that they love from their family or from civic culture and to invent new traditions and new uh, ways of celebrating these holidays uh, that serve their needs and uh, of the moment. And I think that's doubly true right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I really hope that people appreciate that Christmas and Thanksgiving and the 4th of July, which feel like these fixed, fixed things in American life and American social life, how they're celebrated today in the 21st century are new things. Even the origins of them are are late 19th century products. But the 4th of July, the modern 4th of July celebration has as much to do with what we talked about here um, with the 18th and 19th century as it also does with the Cold War in the 20th. So it's really important to remember that holidays, like everything else, have a history and historicizing them should allow us to understand that you can change them to serve your needs uh, today. Michael, what are your takeaways? So I think uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the takeaways for me has to do with the sort of interrelationship throughout American history, even down to the present, between uh, cultural meaning and political circumstances. So we we saw that uh, when we were talking about Christmas. We saw that when we were talking about Pope's Day. And of course, we saw that when we were talking about Fourth of July. The overarching thing that that ties these holidays together, and you could say many others, but but I, but these these three or four at least, I think, is that they are expressions of uh, an attempt to create cultural meaning and to create some form of civic cohesiveness. When you think about the periods in which these holidays were being celebrated or in which they were stopped being celebrated uh, in early America, you, you can see why there was a need at various times to promote and preserve some sense of uh, civic cohesion. And, and I think going off Roy's contemporary illusions, I think that the, the same applies today. And for my part, I think the takeaway that I'd like people to have from this episode is to think both globally and locally when thinking about the traditions um, that are reflected in today's holiday calendar. One of the things that we've identified is how much larger international forces helped shape the focus on particular days in the American civic tradition, and particularly with regards to different attitudes towards Christmas and how how those have ebbed and flowed over time. Um, But at the same time, even in recreating these traditions that owe much to international and global circumstances, we can only really talk about the particular meaning of holidays by focusing quite locally that even when we're talking about July the 4th, which is as national and American a creation as you can imagine as a holiday, 
you only really understand what's going on with the observance of July the 4th by really drilling down into how the holiday is being celebrated in those specific communities. And I think that's one of the interesting things, and I think it's one of the key insights that um, historians of festive culture have contributed to our understanding of the early republic is recognising that these sorts of celebrations give a a point of connection between very disparate communities, but they also give us a point of um, contestation and comparison between those different communities as well. And that is all that we have time for today. We hope that However, and wherever you are celebrating this Christmas time, that you have a happy and peaceful time, and we give you all the best wishes for good health and good fortune in the new year. If you'd like to get in contact with us, there are many different ways of reaching out to us. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at JuntoCast. You can find us on Facebook using the link facebook.com slash thejuntocast. Our website, which has show notes and links to all our back episodes, can be found at www.thejuntocast.com. And if you'd like to write to us, you can use our email address, thejuntocast at gmail.com. We are available in all kinds of different podcast apps. That includes Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And we would really appreciate it if you would spread some Christmas cheer by leaving a rating or review of the JuntoCast in Apple Podcasts. It does help direct other people to our feed. With that, all I've got left to do is to thank Michael Hatton for joining me today. Thank you, Ken. And to thank Roy Rogers for joining me today. Thanks, Ken, and happy holidays. And, as always, to thank you, the listeners, to tuning in to the JuntoCast. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. All right, here we go. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Haddam 